But if somebody was asking you what that movie's about, you end up kind of forgetting the main plot. Like there's a lot of scenes and there's a lot of details that you like about that movie, but you, you forget what that movie is about, the story of that movie. For me, this movie that, 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 that with me that I can't remember the plot is Dumb and Dumber. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's an older movie, but growing up, man, me and my brother, we watched that. It, it's, it's Christmas in September, right? And it even got a little cooler for us this morning to remind us of that and to, and to set the scene outside. But uh, I think sometimes that happens with us, with, with the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, that we have picked uh, some of the great details and the great scenes that we love the Magi coming and the shepherds and all this. But, but really, what, what is important about what Luke wants to say to us this morning about the birth of of Christ and where does it fit in to God's redemptive story that he's writing for us to redeem a people and so we're going uh, to look at that this morning I hope that we would pull back and we would see the great importance of how God came to this earth and how he's speaking to us that we would trust as we've been seeing as we've been walking through Luke this is a series that we're going in so we've been this is our third or fourth week in Luke and we're going to be in Luke for a while that we would trust because what we're seeing straight from the beginning. And Luke is writing with this purpose that, man, God has orchestrated and planned these events. He has planned salvation. And so that applies to the details of our lives, that we can trust in his sovereignty and his control, and nothing is outside of his control. This morning, that we would learn. We would learn the posture of Jesus' coming and what that means for us who claim to follow him with our lives and that we would be fascinated we would be fascinated with the beautiful and majestic message of Christ coming and what that means in his birth. And so I hope that we see that this morning. Before we get started, I want us to pray. If you just join in praying with me. Father, it's already been such a good morning to come before you, God, to, to praise you together as one body united in your name and in who you are. God, and as we look at your word, God, I just pray, I pray that we, that we peel back, God, and we see your word in a fresh way, God, and we see your message of grace and salvation in a fresh way, God, like we've never seen it before, and you would, we would walk out of here full of gladness and full of joy in our hearts, because you've spoken to us, God, and we've seen who you are, and we've seen what you've done. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the passage, I want to set just a, a little bit of context, not too much, because Chad uh, has covered a lot of that in the last couple of sermons, but Luke is writing to Theophilus. He's writing an orderly account. That's what he says in the beginning. I want to give you an account of who Jesus is. I want to tell you about his journey. And so, really, Luke is, is presented in a way that, journey, uh, that Jesus is taking a journey towards the cross, where we know that he's going. And so we get started this morning and seeing the beginning of Jesus' journey and that he is, he is born. But all along before this, we've been seeing the prophecies that the angels have appeared to Mary, that the angels have appeared to Elizabeth. They've been telling that Jesus will be born, that John the Baptist will be born. This is a planned event. This is something that the prophets have talked about long ago in the Old Testament. So this is very planned and it's orderly and it's a plan that's unfolding. We've seen supernatural things that, that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. Mary, that, that Joseph and Mary did not conceive. So we've seen things all throughout this, that things that are impossible with man, they're not impossible with God. God is doing the impossible in his plan and in his work um, to unfold his plan of salvation. 
The birth of, of, of John the Baptist has been told, foretold. The birth of Jesus has been foretold. And so we're going to look at their births this morning. So we're going to start in chapter 1 in verse 57 this morning. If you turn there, Luke chapter 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And we saw that last week in the story. The angels had given specific instructions that this, this baby that you're having will be called John. So they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. If you remember, Zechariah had been muted because of his unbelief that a baby would be born of him and Elizabeth. And so he has to write it out. His name is John. And this is probably, he couldn't hear, so this is probably a situation where he couldn't have gotten with Elizabeth and, and maybe known what the names were going to be and what they had heard from the angels. So this is why, in these next few verses, the people are astonished about this. That, that Elizabeth is saying his name will be John and Zechariah is saying his name will be John. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So we see John and this is very purposeful and this is important because the, the naming of, of children here were, was customary uh, and it would happen on the eighth day. He's about to be circumcised so they waited till then to name the child and so it usually would have, it would have been very common that, that probably everybody's assuming his name would be Zachariah after his dad, or at least a relative name. And, and Chad hit on this last week, I won't talk about it too much, but there's importance in knowing that his name is John, that means Yahweh is gracious. Because a lot of times the names given by God or the names given by a family were a, were a, a future projection of what their character was going to be like and how their life was going to be lived. And John the Baptist is here for a very specific reason that we'll look at more specifically in Luke chapter 3. But John the Baptist is here to prepare the way for Jesus and his message. Yahweh is gracious. This is the message that John the Baptist will proclaim. That we, we serve a, a gracious God. And not just in the way they had known it in the Old Testament. This is a whole new thing coming in. You're going to see the grace of God unfold in a way like you have never experienced before. So this is important for us to know. That's why they name John by his name. We'll continue in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... I'm going to stop right there for just a second because I want to note, I want to note real quick, we have Luke who's wrote the book of Acts that we're looking through, the, the book of Luke, and has also wrote Acts right, right, right behind it in one book and for the same audience. And so it's important. I want us to see how the Trinity is working out in the gospel. We have the Father who's appointing things. Okay, and we see how he's appointing all this stuff. They're, they're pulling back to the Old Testament where God the Father has, has prophesied and used men of God to prophesy about one who is coming. And we see in this account what we see today is that Jesus, his role, he is coming to earth and then the Holy Spirit is playing a role here. Looking, uh, which of course we see it right here in 67. The first time we see the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke 1.15. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. She, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Luke 1.35. So 
That's the second time we see the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. In uh, Luke 1, 41, she's able to understand Mary's child. It's special. And so this is the fourth time in chapter 1 of Luke that we see the Holy Spirit. And it's important, and Luke puts it in here, it's important, we're going to look at it, what Zechariah is saying through this prophecy. And the only way he knows this truth and he knows what he's saying, and it's true what he's saying, is because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit who is working in this book, who is, who is convicting of sin, who is acting out this, this plan of God. And it's important that Luke establishes that all the way from the beginning because when we get to Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and is unleashed. And so he wants his audience to see that. And he wants us to see that this morning. So Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, okay, so what is he saying? Let's look at what he's saying because this is important, what Zechariah says here. In 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Okay, so the first thing he's saying, there's, there's one that is coming, a Messiah that is coming. This isn't new, this isn't new language that we've seen, but it's certainly going to have a, a new meaning now. Even maybe that Zechariah doesn't understand, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's able to say this. God is visiting and redeeming his people. And it's using a lot of the language of the Old Testament. There's a horn of salvation. It's going to come from the house of David. It's coming from the prophets. Everything the prophets have said of old of this Messiah that is coming. It's coming. It's here. It's happening. It's now. A king is coming. He's going to establish something real and permanent. In Acts, we see the same thing. When, when Peter gives a message, when, when Paul gives a message, Luke's pointing out in Acts, every time those guys are given a message, because they don't have this New Testament book like we have, they go back and they say, this, everything that they're talking about right here, these verses that they're talking about, the prophets are talking about, this one who will come and redeem a people, it's Jesus. We've witnessed him. We've witnessed his life, and we've witnessed what he's done. So Zechariah is saying, a Messiah is coming. He's visited, redeemed his people. What else? Let's see, 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from all the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. What does that sound like? There sounds like a lot of deliverance happening there. And so what is Zechariah saying? This is important, this breakdown, because this, we're going to come back to this later. But what is Zechariah saying? Okay, a, a Messiah is coming. One is coming, and God has visited us. And second, he's saying we're going to be saved from our enemies. He may not understand fully what that looks like, but there's a lot of salvation, a deliverance in there. A Savior's coming. Someone to save Israel. Someone to save his people. And, and, and that we would be in right standing with them. That's another thing that he's saying. Look at 74 and 75 again, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. We're going to serve him once we've been delivered from the enemy without fear. We're going to do it in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now this righteousness means a right standing with God. We enter into a right relationship with God. This is not something that Israel would have been unfamiliar with. The people of God, they know that they need saving. Israel knows that it needs saving. It may have looked a little different for them of what they thought that was going to be. Probably more of a government, political type saving. But Israel knows they need saving. They know they're not in right standing with God. 
And so that's why they have to follow all these rules and these rituals and make all these sacrifices in the temple. And a lot of times that's probably done out of fear of God. I better make this sacrifice. They, they understand they need saving, but, but the one Zacharias talking about that would come, the one the Old Testament prophesies about, one that will come, we'll be able to serve him without fear. That's not without respect, and we've talked about that before in our gathering, with a healthy fear of God, a respect of God. This is, out, this is about a, a fear of, of our obligation to serve him is out of fear that he's going to zap us down. It's not going to be a people like that. He's going to buy a people that serve in holiness. We're holy from the inside out. Not just by the things that we do and the sacrifices that we offer, but we, God looks at us and we're holy people. And we're righteous. Because of our holiness, he looks and we're in right standing with God. We don't have a separation with God anymore. So he's saying a Savior will come that we will serve God in holiness, not out of obligation. Something that comes from the inside. We want to serve. And look at 76 through 80. 76, a new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's turning his attention because this is at the circumcision of his baby, John the Baptist. And he's speaking to John the Baptist. You, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people. You're going to prepare the way. You're going to give this knowledge of this salvation that is coming. And the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what's this last thing Zechariah saying? Someone's coming that's going to rescue us from a dark, depressed place into a way of life that's full of peace, hope, and joy. What Zechariah is saying here, and he could be referencing to in Isaiah 9-2 in the Old Testament, Sounds very familiar to what Isaiah was saying and prophesying about. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we get this imagery. There's people walking in the darkness. They can't see where they're going. They can't see purpose in life. It's dark all around them. It's a depressing mood. They're going to see a light. There's going to be hope. There's going to be peace for your soul. And so this is what Zechariah is saying in this. The Messiah is coming, that we need saving, that there's a Savior that comes. That we're going to be able to serve Him in holiness and righteousness. We'll have right standing with Him. So we'll serve a, a Lord and a King that is coming. Okay, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to what Zechariah is saying. Because it's not a mistake and it's not, by, it's not unintentional that Luke puts that in where he does. Well, let's look in Luke 2. We're going to see the account of the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2. Verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first reg registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child 
And so what we see happening is a government decree, okay? A government decree puts them in just the right place. This is no coincidence. This is what would be prophesied about. There's some, there's some things being fulfilled even here and where Jesus is born. He's born in Bethlehem. This is what Micah 5.2 is speaking about. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Saying out of Bethlehem, one is coming who will be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's from the tribe of Judah. We see this being fulfilled in his birth. Genesis 49.10 tells us that, that the Messiah, the coming one, will be from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, from the line of King David. 2 Samuel 7 tells us that he's going to be coming from the line of David. And so we see these things that were told about thousands of years ago and they're coming forth. And so what we've seen up to this point, from all that we've seen up to this point in this text, with the planning of John the Baptist, with the prophecies that Zechariah is speaking about, with the birth of Jesus and the things that are being fulfilled, we can be confident. We can be confident the coming of Jesus is a perfectly planned event by a perfect God who controls all things. And if, the, if Jesus' way is planned, that means that salvation is planned. And which means that applies to our life and that gives us great hope to know that God's drawing us as his children. That is a planned event, that he would draw us as his children. So you think back over your life and think about the circumstances in your life. It could have been the disasters in your life that drew you close to him. That's not outside of his control. The home that you were born in, the, the Christian parents that you were born to, not by choice of your own, but they taught you the ways of Jesus. That's not by chance. That is Jesus pursuing you. That is God pursuing you in his plan of salvation. The unbelieving parents that you had that, that probably maybe put you in bad circumstances but led you to a place where you came to understand who Christ was and you could see the contrast of a life lived with Christ and a life without. That's not, that's not beyond his control. There's a plan that he would draw you in that way. The bad relationship that you were in that ended badly but that helped you wake up and abandon all for the sake of following Christ. That is planned in your life. Jesus was using that to draw you to himself. Maybe the night that you hit rock bottom after parting realized that you need a, a, a hope and a peace in your life more than anything. You can trust that God, that was not outside of God's circumstance, that he was pursuing you. His salvation is planned. The good relationship or the good person that God placed in your life that led you to understand the ways of Jesus and to trust in Him more. Planned. The fact that we're here this morning to hear this message is not beyond God's control. That we would come together every week like this and, and remember Jesus and remember who He is and be drawn towards Him. It's all planned. It's all in His control and it gives us hope that in the details of our lives we know that, that Jesus salvation and pursuing of us is is planned and so it's a call today even in these events and it's a narrative story but it's a call to look back at the story and what do we see about the character of God is that he's controlling these things he's controlling salvation in the way that Jesus would come and the way that we would respond to him in faith so it's a call for us to trust him more and more with our lives Not only that, as Jesus' way has been planned, but we're going to look. How does, how does Jesus come to this earth? Look with me in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There's two ironic sides. You think about the message. First off, it's angels that have come. We've been seeing angels come a lot. And that's crazy, right, that angels come. We know when an angel shows up, like they have something important to say. Like, let's tune our ears in to what they're saying. And the announcement will come back to what they're saying. But they're bringing some very good news and a very majestic message to these shepherds. With two, man, ironic, crazy signs where we see this greatness with commonness. This baby, this Christ, this Savior that is born to you, you're going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. The common cloth that just the common folks would have used to wrap their babies in. Not some fine, kingly linens, swaddling clothes, and you're going to find him laying in a manger. That's not the normal part. That's probably not where most people kept their babies. It's a little stone carving that fed the animals. So if you have like a, a dog, you see their dog dish, gets pretty nasty. This would even be, I mean, these, these are big animals that they're feeding. You're going to find the baby in a manger. Humble circumstances, this great message and this great baby that comes, this greatness with this calmness that he comes in swaddling clothes. He comes, you're going to find him. He's, he's been laid in a manger. There was no room for them then. He's born in the humble town of Bethlehem from two humble parents, Joseph and Mary, nothing special about them or their occupation. And then the message, who is it going to? The message is going to the shepherds. Okay, and the shepherds, they're known as religious outcasts, known as unclean. Because of the work that they had to do and how they had to deal with the shepherds, they couldn't go into the temple and make the sacrifices like everybody else got to do. So they're known as unclean people. Don't even get near the temple, near the presence of God. You're unclean. They're, they're known in that time as borderline social outcasts because they're having to travel around all the time and they literally become so uh, concerned and caring about their sheep. The only human interaction they have is with other shepherds who are also in the field talking to the sheep because they're so lonely. Okay? So these are people that talk to the sheep and they're known as that. They're known as kind of a social outcast, not really knowing how to deal with, with people in social situations. A lot of them are, would be a, accused of being thieves and taking things. They, this, is, this is interesting that shepherds were not uh, permitted to give testimony in a legal proceeding. So if you had a court and it's drawn up and you want a witness that says this person did this or this person didn't do this, so bring those witnesses in. If, you're, if a shepherd is on your list, cross them out because they don't count. They don't get to bring forth witness because they, they weren't known as being reliable enough. And this is who the message comes to. And all of these things, how is Jesus coming? He's, he's born in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, born in the, the, the modest town of Bethlehem to modest parents, and then his message first goes to these modest shepherds. Jesus, man, the posture of Jesus coming. This is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He comes humbly, doesn't he? He comes humbly. And there's, there's, there's something for us this morning to notice the posture of Jesus' arrival. Because the, noted, the, the posture of Jesus' arrival 
the Savior of the world coming into the, coming into the world is, is the posture of his kingdom. It's the posture of the kingdom of God. It should be the posture of his people. It's the posture of, of, of this message of salvation for people. It's amazing to see the beauty in this that, that we know and the, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was sitting at the, at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has always been. Even though he comes in human, fle- human flesh as a baby, he, he's always been. And so his mission, which is filled because of the, the overwhelming grace and mercy of God, he leaves the right hand of the Father. Is born into these humble circumstances. That's, that's, that's enough to say, wow, man. Look at the grace and the mercy of God. But there's also a lesson in that to be learned. That's the mission that God has, that Jesus would come into the world. But, but not just to notice that and observe that and take away how this, that applies to our lives and that we should be on mission, but the way that he does it. The posture that he does it. That he brings in the gospel. Posture by definition, is an attitude of the body. It's an attitude of the body. So it's not just the verbal, spoken message, but it's how you say it and what you're not saying with your body language. It's your attitude of the body, your posture. You know, I, I got a dog a few months ago. I've been working with a trainer, trying to do some things. You know, it's interesting that it, when I'm on the ground playing with my dog, and yes, I get on the ground and I play with my dog. She's a yellow lab puppy, and I like to do that. <clears throat> But, you know, it's interesting when I'm on the ground playing with her, and if I'm laying on my back, she's been trained, man, she can sit, she's smart, she can sit, she can shake, she can jump, she can stay, she can fetch, she can do all that kind of stuff. But when I'm laying on the ground with her, on my back, it don't matter if I use the same words over and over, sit, stay, lay down, I can use the same tone I would use, she's not going to listen to me. Why is she not going to listen to me? Because my posture isn't right. I'm laying on the ground, and what she's thinking is a, the fetal position, the you've given up position. So my posture's all wrong in how I talk to her. If I stand up and I look over her and I say, sit, or if I say, stay, then she knows my posture. And so that's the posture that we have. Hugh Halter is a guy who wrote a book called uh, Tangible Kingdom. He talks a lot about this, this attitude of, of posture that Christians would have. And he tells uh, numerous stories in this book that I've read, Tangible Kingdom, about how he has, he has worked. He's been a pastor for a long time, but how he, God has showed him to change his posture and how he walks with people. And so one of the things he does in, in the context that he's in, in in Colorado, he tries to avoid telling people that he's, he's a pastor because that presents for people this posture Man, I don't want to listen to anything that you've said. So with his neighbors and with his friends and the people that he's friends, a lot of them unbelievers, he's changed his posture, man. That he just, he's, he's going to be their friend. He's going to be there for them. He's going to love them. He's going to care for them. So his, his body language and the way that he lives his life and the way that he postures himself to lead his family uh, is different than how it, how it used to be. And you know what he's noticed and what he's seen, and he tells about in his book several stories, people will come and asking him, about this great truth. He postures himself in a situation where people want to know the message, the good news, the joy that he has in his life. And so it's a, it's a posture. Jesus' posture, as he comes to this earth, it reeks of humility. It reeks of humility. So, so what does that mean for us? It means that pride does not do well in Christianity. Pride does not do well for us. We can always... We can always assume that if we live prideful lives, the people who don't yet know Jesus are going to reject him. Because why? 
Why should our lives be marked by humility? And why does it not work if they're marked by pride in our lives? Because our king is so humble. Our king is humble. And if we live lives with a posture that we're prideful, they're going to reject the king that we serve. However, okay, this, this humility does not mean the absence of a bold proclamation. It's not the absence of a bold proclamation because though Jesus came humbly, Jesus is proclaimed majestically. He's proclaimed majestically. Let's read in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. There will be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a, with the angel, a multitude. You could also read that word that could be translated an army. There's an army of angels of the heavenly host praising God. And they're saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's not make the mistake that, that this, this message entering in humbly into this world makes it a small one. The message comes humbly, but the message is huge. And this is where we're going to go back to what Zechariah is saying. In his prophecy. Because it's been fulfilled. Luke says this is what Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. He says it's coming and it comes. And it comes humbly. And it comes in the form of a baby. Look at, look at the words because they're, they're very important of what the angels are saying. They're saying that a Christ has come. This is, this is, the, this is a different word in their language for Messiah. And so I don't know, about, I don't know what age you were at when you realized that uh, Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't refer to Jesus as Mr. Christ if he was walking around today. It's not his last name. That's a title that he has, that he's the Christ. He's the one that all of the Old Testament talks about. Jesus Messiah. Jesus Christ that is coming. Not only is he a Christ, okay, and this is what Zechariah has been telling us. God has visited and redeemed his people. All the prophets of old, this is what they're talking about, that a Christ is coming. And this is what the angels are affirming from Zechariah's prophet. A Christ has come. The Christ has come. Who is what? He's also a Savior. A Savior. Do you remember from Zechariah's prophecy? We're going to be delivered from our enemies. We're going to be delivered. And so this Savior comes who's going to deliver us. He's the one that will deliver us. And we, we have a response to this. We have a response to Jesus as Savior. And these are the responses that we can have. Our response can be that we reject it altogether. We reject that Jesus is a Savior. And I'm not talking about in the traditional ways that maybe you just completely don't believe in it, although that's, that's rejecting it too, or verbally not rejecting it. We can reject it with our lives, the way that we live our lives. Serving out of obligation, thinking that we have to do it out of obligation, is rejecting the idea that Jesus is Savior, that we have to do something. We don't have to do anything. Jesus is Savior. That's His role, to be Savior. We can't be Savior of our own lives. Anytime we're trying to prove ourselves to others or to other people, we're rejecting this idea that Jesus is Savior, that He's proven everything. When we have sin, but we do not repent, obviously we're rejecting that Jesus is Savior. Because we just keep running in unrepentant sin and denying the fact that we have a gracious and merciful Savior who can deliver us from this thing that we're running after if we'll just turn to Him. So we can, we can reject the Savior. We can be offended. This is, this is not un, uncommon. It's growing more common that we, we're offended. I, I don't need saving. What do you mean a Savior? Saving from what? I'm, I'm a good person. And we can be offended. That's, that's one of the responses that we can have to Jesus being Savior. We can be not interested. 
I think this is the most dangerous of all. It's the most irresponsible of all. This message that we're looking at and that we'll walk through in Luke and even what we're looking at this morning, that, that a baby came that, that was literally born of a virgin and that angels came and said, this is the Christ, this is the Lord, this is the Messiah. That's worth examining. This is a message that's worth taking a look at. But we do. We will live lives, especially where we've grown up, that we... We know about it as a Christmas story, but really we're not interested in what that means for our lives on a daily basis, that he's our savior. What has he saved us from? He didn't save us just, just some days of the week or some days of the year. He wants to guide us into a place where we walk in peace and, and light and truth. And my hope, my hope for all of us is this is the response. The response that the angels had. We would respond with joyful gladness. Joyful glad. What do they say? They say, I'm bringing you good news, okay? And this is really a verb form. We, we use this word like gospel. The gospel means good news. So we use it a lot as a noun. But the, ver- the angels are using it as a verb. Literally, I'm, we're going we're to gospel you here for a second. I'm about, to, I'm about to gospel you some news, some good stuff. I'm gospeling to you, and it's of great joy. You can't separate that. This news, if you receive it, it's of great joy for your life. And the army of angels are filled with joy, aren't they? In the way that they celebrate this king. And if he is Savior, this is the last word that they use. If he's Savior, and if we're willing to, to, to realize that we need his salvation, that he can give us peace in our hearts and in our lives. If he's Savior, then he's Lord. And that's what they say. The angels are saying, this is, this is Christ. He's the Savior and he's the Lord. That means he's the Lord of what? He's the Lord of everything. We need all three of these titles of Jesus to be true for any of them to make a difference. If he's not the Christ, he's not the Savior. If he's not the Savior, he's not the Lord. If he's all three, then he's all three. We don't get to accept salvation from him and not surrender our lives under him as Lord of everything. Because in order for him to be Savior, he has to be Lord of everything. Lord over sin, Lord over death. That's what we see accomplished on the cross in his resurrection. He's Lord over everything. And that means he'll be Lord over our lives or else he cannot be Savior. He can't save us from our sin. He's just another guy like, like me and you. And it's the same thing that Zechariah is saying. If you, if you will trust this, there's a, there's a Christ that has come. There's a, a Savior that has come. There's a Lord that has come that you can serve. And when you surrender your life to Jesus, you serve. And he changes your heart and he changes your life. You don't serve out of obligation. You serve out of joy. And because you're walking in peace now. Because you know that all of your sins and your separation from God is taken away and the perfect life that Jesus lived is now the perfect life that God looks at when he looks at you. And you're free to serve and you're free to love. He's Christ. He's Savior. He's Lord. This is what Zechariah is saying and this is what we see the angels affirming. This is who's come, Jesus. And so I want to leave as, as we begin to come to a close with some challenges from this text for each of us. Challenge one, we, would we trust God's salvation plan? Would you trust God's salvation plan? Don't miss the plot of what's happening in this story. God has orchestrated salvation and bringing Jesus all the way down to the detail. And he did this to show us that, show us that we can trust him. 
how God is moving in this text, God does not change. It applies to our lives and how he moves and works all the way down to the little details of our life. Would you trust in his pursuing of you? Second challenge, would we posture ourselves the way that Jesus postured himself while proclaiming a majestic message? We don't shy away about the message of who Christ is because that's who he is. He's Christ, he's Lord, he's leader over everything, and he's Savior. He's the only one that can save us. But the posture, how do we do this? Our body, the attitude of our lives. I wonder if, if maintaining Jesus' posture while boldly proclaiming who he is uh, maybe looks more like that we would take in young women and we would care for them and the babies that they would have in our homes and in our lives. Man, and that's a wreck, and that's a turning your life upside down, and that's a commitment, but maybe we would do that instead of picketing the abortion clinics. Maybe that's more of the posture of our king. Maybe, what, what would it look like if we took on the posture of Jesus and, and how we talk about and we deal with, with politics? Well, maintaining what we stand for and the message of God and and who he is, but I wonder if our posture would be so full of anger and hate and strife if we took on the posture that we see from, from Jesus, our, our king. With the neighbors that you don't like. What if you repented maybe of the posture that you've had with them? And even though maybe your, your complaints are validated, but what if your posture changed to where they would be willing to listen and see from your life the message of, of Jesus and that he is, you do believe that he is the Christ and you do believe he's the leader of every bit of your life and that he's the savior for you and he's the only hope for them. If your posture changed with them, what if your posture changed even, even in-house within our church family? You know, among brothers and sisters, does your posture look more like a closed fist or does it look like an open hand among each other? We have a lot to learn from this passage in the way that Christ came and the posture that he took on. And then lastly, would you, this morning, whether you have heard this message over and over and over, or maybe you've heard it over and over, but you've never really believed it, or maybe this is one of your first times hearing this message about Jesus and how he came to the world. It, we all have something in common this morning. It's if we'll surrender our lives to him being Lord, to being leader, if we'll trust, if we trust, if we really trust with everything that he's the Savior, we don't have to work harder, we don't have to prove ourselves to anybody. If we trust Jesus is Savior, and he's Christ, this is a plan that God has ordained. And even in this moment that he may be pursuing you, would you trust that he's pursuing you? Then we can be filled with gladness and joy and walk in peace like you have never experienced even though the waters around you and the, the situation and circumstances of life man they look rocky and they look terrible you can have an inner peace because the creator of this universe the Lord of this universe who created this thing and he's gonna end this thing the way that he wants to end it he looks at you and he says that person has Jesus as their their leader of their life and as their savior they have faith in him and you can have peace in knowing that and you can, you can hold on to that promise. And with all the uncertainty you may have in your life, that's a certainty that you have, is that you are a child of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?
Father, I thank you for this message that we hear from your word this morning. God, and would you just affirm for us, God, these, these terms maybe that we're so familiar with, God, that we lose sight of what they really mean, God, that you, you, you have planned everything in life and we can trust you. You have planned a coming Messiah and a coming Christ. And you have shown us that you planned that. God, we can trust in your plan, your pursuit of us. God, would you show us, just even in this moment, that you are the Lord of everything, of all creation, God. And because of that truth, we should make you the Lord of our life, God. And we struggle with that, and I know we do, God. I struggle, people in this room, God, we struggle with that. I pray for a fresh newness, God, that we would surrender to your leadership in our lives this morning, God. And be encouraged to know and to walk in the truth that you are Savior. You are Savior. And we can rejoice in that. God, you have, you have saved us from our sin, God, and the, the things that we get into, God, our selfish desires that lead to death, lead to depression, lead to darkness. God, you are the rescuer of those things that we would walk in peace. God, we have peace because we know we have a relationship with you and we have your Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us. God, so you make that real to us this morning. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand. We're going to have a time of response. These guys are going to begin to, to play, and we end our gathering this way every week. And I, 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 just, I just want you to consider, as you come and you take the, the bread, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and you dip it in the cup, it represents his blood, his blood that was shed. Because the story doesn't end that Jesus was born. We know that he went on to live a, a perfect life, fully submitted to the Father, and just the same way that he came in humbly, he left this earth humbly. He died a criminal's death for the sins of the world. But the story doesn't end there. He rose again. He sits right now at the right hand of the Father. This is a time when we remember that and we celebrate that. And as you come, would you remember that, that he's the Savior, that he's the Christ, that he's the Lord of everything. We have two in the front. We have a table in the back that you can also go to and take communion there. So we're just going to have a response time. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a song, if I'm, if I'm right. We're going to sing because he lives. This baby that we talked about this morning, he lives today. And we can sing to him. As you sing this, would you just picture, you're singing it to Jesus. You're not singing it to somebody that's dead and that's in the grave. Because he lives, he lives right now. You can put your hands up, and Jesus knows that. And you're singing to a God who is alive this morning, to a Jesus who is, who is alive. And you can talk to him. And you can handle him. You can tell him your frustrations. And you can lay your burdens on top of him. He, 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 he longs for you to do that. So let's worship this morning that way.